Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Evolution is usually depicted as a consequence of the never-ending war between living things. The physical environment around those living things plays a part, but it's secondary to the intimate relationships that organisms have with one another. These relationships are known to be the driving force of evolution. But it turns out that might be just a recent development. We hear about the ecological relationships as the primary force of evolution all the time, from talking about symbiosis to the ongoing competitions between species called Red Queen's races. But it wasn't always that way. For example, in the oceans, ecological success was closely tied to the inanimate forces steering ocean chemistry until only about 170 million years ago. Complex organisms had been evolving since at least the beginning of the Cambrian period. Killian Eikenseer is a doctoral candidate at the University of Plymouth. That's what, 300 million years of evolution in the Paleozoic, and all the time they were still, well, so susceptible to these very basic geochemical shifts. Well, yeah, I find it surprising. Eikenseer, his advisor Uwe Baltazar, and their colleagues showed something else in a paper last summer in Nature Geoscience. They showed certain tiny marine creatures that emerged in the Jurassic changed evolution in the ocean. About 250 million years ago, at the end of the Permian period, life on Earth suffered an unprecedented blow. Something, perhaps massive volcanic activity in what are now the Siberian traps, devastated the global ecosystem. It eliminated 90% or more of all marine species and upward of 70% of those on land. The nearly cleaned slate marked the dawn of the Mesozoic era. Life was slow to recover. For the first few tens of millions of years, the seas were dominated by groups of animals like the tough, thick-shelled brachiopods, ammonites, and mollusks. There were some of the scant survivors of the Permian extinction. But in the middle of the Mesozoic, Eikenseer says the ocean began to teem with agile animals that had much thinner shells. If you look at the fossil record, we see animals becoming bigger, becoming more active, predators become more fearsome. At the same time, the environment is fluctuating. There is environmental change, but there's nothing dramatically going on in one direction. So with that contrast, we thought if the animals are improving, so to say, and the environment is not changing much, that would mean that the environment should become less important in evolution. The dramatic shift in marine life came to be known as the Mesozoic Marine Revolution. And it was in this time of renewal that a new kind of life emerged, the calcifying plankton, a diverse classification of tiny organisms that build shells or skeletons of calcium carbonate. It's not clear why groups like the single-celled plant-like coccolithophores and tiny amoeboid-shelled foraminifera evolved when they did. That was roughly 80 million years after the mass extinction. The advent of biomineralization in the early Cambrian opened up significant new options for living things. 
So in a sense, it's not surprising that new species evolved and took advantage of the opportunity to calcify. Hard shells help protect an organism against predation and other physical harm. They can also act as a protective barrier against DNA-damaging ultraviolet rays. Plus, at the time, there was a lot of dissolved carbonate in the water, so the abundance of carbonate as a resource could have facilitated the development of calcification pathways. But calcifiers face serious risks. As a group, they're very sensitive to changes in ocean chemistry. To make their shells, they have to pull calcium and carbonate ions from seawater. That process becomes harder when water becomes more acidic. Worse, if the water becomes acidic enough, those calcium carbonate shells start to dissolve. That's why mass marine extinctions have often been linked to geological or climatic events that caused the pH of the ocean to fall. Volcanic activity particularly tends to release a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and as the gas diffuses into the oceans, it turns waters more acidic. Between the Ordovician period, about 485 million years ago, and the early Jurassic period, about 170 million years ago, there was abundant volcanic activity. That led to the extinction of many marine species. During that time, organisms thrived or died, mostly based on factors beyond their control. Here's Eikensier again. And then after that time, in the, around the Middle Jurassic, there were still volcanism, but that was usually not anymore accompanied by an extinction event. Eikensier suspects the credit for life's new resilience probably goes to those plankton, especially the ones that died. That's because layers of dead carbonate organisms on the seafloor can dissolve when the seawater pH starts to drop. The released carbonate ions then raise the pH again. Places where there is an abundance of dead carbonate organisms have always acted as a buffer to stabilize the ocean's chemistry. But before these calcifying plankton appeared, this carbonate buffer was restricted to shallow continental shelves. There simply wasn't enough chalky floor space to buffer against the extreme changes in acidity from volcanoes or other geological events. Then the calcifying plankton took over. These days, you'd be hard-pressed to find ocean waters less than 100 meters deep that don't contain calcifying plankton. Despite their tiny size, they may account for nearly 12% of the total biomass in the oceans. And they've completely altered the way carbon moves around the planet. About 80% of the carbon-containing rocks on Earth are derived from the remains of these plankton and other marine calcifiers. That's amazing when you think that by mass, these plankton may account for less than 0.2% of Earth's carbon-containing life. Rowan Martindale is a paleoecologist at the University of Texas, Austin. All of a sudden, you have all these little teeny tiny carbonate organisms that together add up to this huge carbonate sink that draws a ton of calcium carbonate out of the ocean and, as is articulated nicely in the paper, changes sort of the dynamics of where that carbonate is deposited. And so it really fundamentally changes how the ocean buffering capacity works. Making the oceans more stable didn't just benefit the calcifying critters. With so many species less likely to become extinct at the planet's whim, all marine species were able to relax and take the time to evolve complex relationships with others. 
That's why life became bigger, faster, and more aggressive. What had been a struggle against the planet became a struggle between organisms. Martindale says the idea that calcifying plankton transformed marine life isn't entirely new. Most paleontologists recognize that there's something pretty important going on in the middle of the Mesozoic. There's discussions about whether it's earlier or later, but the Mesozoic marine revolution is a pretty fundamental change in sort of how the oceans operated. Martindale says for more than a decade, there's been a general consensus in the paleontology community that the rise of calcifying plankton fundamentally changed ocean chemistry. It allowed an entirely new suite of organisms to emerge and dominate. But until recently, no one had tested the idea empirically. Killian Eikenseer and his colleagues did just that. First, they pulled together the information they needed. We used this big database of fossils, the paleobiology database, to look at the success of marine calcifying animals throughout the last 450 million years. Those are animals like bivalves, brachiopods, gastropods, cephalopods, and corals, plus species of calcifying algae that don't count as plankton. We divided them into two groups based on their shell mineralogy. So marine calcifiers, they use either aragonite or calcite to build their shells. So we looked at the success of aragonitic calcifiers relative to other calcifiers. And this measure we correlated with the environmental variables. So the precipitation of aragonite is favored when temperature is high and when a lot of magnesium is in the water. So we basically compared how the aragonitic calcifiers did with the magnesium and temperature in the water at the time. Again, when temperatures or magnesium concentrations are high, organisms that build a particular form of calcium carbonate called aragonite have an easier time. Cooler, lower magnesium waters make life simpler for calcite-making creatures. Eikenseer explains. Our hypothesis was that if the calcifiers are influenced by these abiotic factors, temperature and ocean chemistry, then if there's an increase in temperature or in the magnesium content of the water, aragonitic calcifiers should benefit. And vice versa, if those environmental variables drop, we should see other calcifiers expand at the expense of aragonitic calcifiers. That's exactly what he and his team saw. Until 170 million years ago, when calcifying plankton became widespread. Then the organisms abruptly decoupled from fluctuations in the temperature and magnesium levels, and aragonite organisms began to dominate despite unfavorable conditions. The researchers weren't able to demonstrate conclusively that the plankton caused this shift. The timing is very fitting, and the mechanism at least makes sense insofar as the plankton directly influences the carbon cycle, so it buffers the ocean chemistry. Basically, by simply existing and dying in such huge numbers in deeper waters, these creatures created a deep reserve of carbonate. That could then dissolve to buffer ocean chemistry whenever environmental changes pushed seawater to become more acidic. Eikenseer and his co-authors wrote in their paper that the ocean's calcium cycle wasn't the only thing the explosion in calcifying plankton would have changed. Virtually the entire marine ecosystem would have changed. 
dying plankton drop toward the sea bottom in a steady rain. Their decomposition is a process that depletes seawater of dissolved oxygen. But because calcifying plankton are relatively heavy, they sink into the depths before they fully decompose. That leaves more oxygen in shallow waters. That change might have increased the range of organisms that could live along continental shelves and made them less vulnerable to other environmental changes. Metabolic rates could have risen, furthering the trend toward more active marine life. Past explanations for the Mesozoic marine revolution have often hinged on the emergence of new predators, like the placodonts and the ichthyosaurs. They could crush the shells of their prey, but it's possible that those predators were themselves taking advantage of a new ecological regime that the calcifying plankton made possible. Pamela Halleck Muller is a biogeological oceanographer at the University of South Florida. She says she's not 100% sure she agrees with the hypothesis. But the idea of the buffering by the dissolution of the planktic forams and coccolis is very interesting, very logical, and very intriguing. I had not thought about the buffering of the oceans in quite that way. Muller says the arguments presented in Eikenseer's paper seem pretty solid. Still, she wonders if the evolutionary regime shift was really a dramatic one or more of a slight nudge. Buffering could have played a part, but so would the mere existence of new edible organisms in the middle of the ocean, a habitat previously lacking in abundance of life. This likely wasn't the first or only major evolutionary regime shift driven by life, after all. Photosynthetic organisms and the oxygen they produce are thought to have played a key role in the sudden expansion of life forms during the Cambrian explosion, though there's some debate as to just how sudden and expansive that explosion really was. And it's thought that similarly drastic changes must have happened on land at some point, though the fossil record for land organisms is much less detailed, so testing hypotheses regarding evolutionary drivers is a lot more difficult. Paleontologist Killian Eikenseer also points out that the plankton didn't exactly rewrite the laws of evolution. They just tipped the balance that made biotic interactions like competition and predation more important. The earth life system stabilized and these environmental perturbations, they still happened, but life was prepared. <laughs> Ever since, evolution in the oceans has remained more biotically driven, which might explain why abiotic events like rapid changes in climate or volcanic eruptions have been less devastating than before. Sure, there have been notable exceptions, like the dinosaur-destroying asteroid impact that spurred a mass extinction at the end of the Mesozoic, but overall, life itself has played a bigger role in deciding what marine life forms survive or disappear. That doesn't mean life will play that larger role forever. This biotic dominance is dependent on oceanic plankton, so it isn't guaranteed. And that might be a bit troubling, given how the abundance and distribution of plankton is being altered by climate change. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Christy Wilcox's full article, 
How Jurassic Plankton Stole Control of the Ocean's Chemistry on our website, quantummagazine.org. And did you know Quantum Magazine also has another podcast? Check out the first season of The Joy of X, hosted by mathematician and author Stephen Strogatz. Each episode is a window into the inner world of a top-tier scientist or mathematician. Find The Joy of X wherever you listen to podcasts.